0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Robert Augustus Masters. Robert Augustus Masters is an integral psychotherapist, a relationship expert, and a spiritual teacher whose work blends the psychological and physical with the spiritual, emphasizing embodiment, emotional literacy, and the development of relational maturity, with Sounds True, Robert Augustus Masters has written a new book called To Be a Man, A Guide to True Masculine Power, where he clarifies what's needed to enter a manhood as strongly empowered as it is vulnerable, as emotionally literate as it is unapologetically alive, a manhood at home with truly intimate relationships. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Robert and I spoke about shame and the deep shame that men often go through in our culture, a culture that can ask men to man up whether they feel like it or not. We talked about healthy rage and what it might mean to develop the skill of having a conscious rant. We talked about the characteristics of a sexuality informed by true masculine power. And finally, we talked about what Robert Augustus Masters believes women need from men. Here's my conversation on the new book, To Be a Man, with Robert Augustus Masters. Robert, the subtitle... To your new book is a guide to true masculine power. So to begin with, how do you define true masculine power?
1: I would say that it is power that is significantly infused with heart, with a ongoing caring for the other or others. In other words, it's not power over others, it's not power that dominates or violates or abuses. But it is power that can take a very, very firm stand without ever losing touch with the humanity of the other person or persons it's addressing.
0: What would you say might be some of the misconceptions that we have in our culture about masculine power?
1: I'd say that it's often conceived of as something that's um, driven, driven. Hard, overly hard, perhaps, and it can be extremely competitive. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a narrow view of it. And many men, of course, um, grow into that. Is that's that's what being a man means is having that type of power, power that's cut off significantly from from one's heart and depths. And the opposite, of course, doesn't work. I've seen many men who who disown their power in the name of trying to. Um, be kinder, friendlier, more open to females, but they have lost their so much in the process. So there's such a balance to have power and heart at the same time.
0: You talk about this alignment, you call it a full-blooded alignment of head, heart, and guts. Maybe mm-hmm. you can explain what you mean by that.
1: Well, head, rationality, thinking, especially critical thinking, heart is Caring for others, feeling empathy, and then and guts is the ability to take a strong stand, even a very fierce stand, and and they work in combo. Damage is minimized. There's there's a sense of of being wholly embodied, because all of one as a man is involved in the process, and the, and the term the adjective full-blooded is very important. It means there's a passion. It's not a, a kind of a there's no shouldn't it or any intellectual kind of gathering of oneself to make a certain presentation. It's more, it's alive, it's vital. And those who are in the presence of that type of uh, alignment usually feel pretty safe in it. The person could be quite fierce as embodying it, but there's a sense of safety and a sense I can trust this person. They're thinking, they're feeling, they're in touch with their guts, their courage, and it's working together, it's integral in the best sense of that word, it's organically integral.
0: When you talk about the heart and bringing the heart to our power, I can imagine someone who might say, you know, this is a little confusing. I mean, you called it a delicate balance, but how am I going to be vulnerable, heartful, and strong at the same time? How does that work?
1: Well, it works in the sense of of not losing touch with your caring for the other. Even if you're angry at the other or very angry, you allow yourself that, and if you don't lose touch with your caring for those others that you're angry at or upset with, the what happens is going to be much more beneficial for all than it would be if I, in other words, if I lose touch with my caring for you, if I'm really angry at you, then I can easily slip it from being angry at you to being aggressive and, of course, you're not going to receive it as well. You're going to feel threatened by it or hurt or wanting to get away. But if you can tell that I'm caring about you, even though I'm uh, being somewhat intense or angry, you're more likely to receive what I'm saying. You don't have to agree with it, but you're more likely to emotionally resonate with it and feel a certain, even subtle intimacy with me because we are I haven't excluded you from my caring. That's a huge step for us men is to is to remember that in the midst of the heat.
0: hmm Mm -hmm. Now, in the beginning of the book, Robert, to be a man, you talk about how our culture shames men to be more manly. Tell me what you mean by that. How do we shame men?
1: Well, we degrade them for not making the grade. We hold up a certain standard that supposedly constitutes being a man or being manly. And so many boys are subjected to that. And the pressure to meet that is very, very intense. And it's so easy and so common and natural to fall short of that. But when we fall short of it, we tend to feel bad about ourselves, we shame ourselves, our inner critic has a field day with us, and is a sense of, of falling short. And because of this, many men tie the sense of being incompetent to shame. So they're there's a sense of if I don't measure up, and here's shame. And shame is an emotion that, for better or for worse, interrupts us in our tracks. It causes a certain contraction in the system. And at worst, it makes us feel terrible about ourselves. And um, it can be embedded in our system to where it becomes toxic. And then the solution to this for many men is to get aggressive. So if I'm feeling a lot of shame and I get aggressive, the, the aggression I'm feeling and and moving and expressing, can easily camouflage the originating shame. And there's that movement from shame to aggression that runs rampant through our culture, especially for men. Once that's seen, it can start to be broken through. So the shame then can be, we can stay with our shame more, work with it, feel the vulnerability inherent in staying with it, and not let it necessarily translate into, into aggression towards others or towards ourselves.
0: Now, tell me why, Robert, at the beginning of the book, To Be a Man, you put so much emphasis on men needing to become familiar with this experience of shame and learning to stay with the feeling instead of reacting to it.
1: Well, if a man stays with the originated feelings of hurt, shame, vulnerability, and he can, and, Ground himself with that. And stay with it. He's less likely to act out, less likely to um, to hurt others, to degrade others, to dehumanize others. But unfortunately, there's also there's a message in our culture that men are not supposed to get really vulnerable. Yeah, you can cry a few tears, shed a few manly tears here and there, but don't break down, don't sob, don't really, really let yourself cry, because that means you're you're less than a man. You're sissy. You're a wimp. There's all kinds of insults for it. And the answer isn't for men to suddenly just start entering that realm of of extreme emotional openness, but to do so in a way that does not involve any disowning of one's power. There's no loss of one's balls, so to speak, just because the heart's breaking, the heart's opening. And when I see men enter this process again and again and again over the decades... It's usually pretty squirmy at first, but it very quickly turns into a sense of of liberation, of feeling very free, like now I get to feel. I can feel fully. I can cry hard. I can rage in a healthy way. I can express my shame. I can hold these states in a way that serves all involved. And it's a joy when one realizes that's a capacity we can cultivate and deepen.
0: No, you said the sentence. I can rage in a healthy way. I can imagine someone saying, "What? What do you mean? How can I don't want to see a man rage in in any way? What would be a healthy way?"
1: Healthy ways where the the, the sense of caring for the other is not um, made obsolete or diminished or lost. There's a sense of the caring that remains there. I call it heart anger, where the heart is involved. It can be very subtle, but there's a sense I will not dehumanize you, no matter how angry I am at you. And another part of that is if one is really going over the top of that, is to handle it responsibly by having what I call a conscious rant. That means a safely boundaried uh, expression of the rage in a way that does no harm, where one can go over the top in a theatrical way with being angry, rageful. last two or three minutes is is the appendix to the book, and um, I found it extremely helpful for, well, not just men, but all of us to have that capacity and on tap to have a conscious rant when we get overloaded. It's not just rage, it can be despair, it can be um, uh, all kinds of states that can take us over to move the energy of that to the point where the charge is lessened enough so we can now skillfully face what we have to face. So implicitness is a responsibility, like healthy rage is responsible and it's not aggression, it's it's not out to attack, it just means anger that's relatively intense.
0: Okay, so this idea of a conscious rant. Let's say somebody's listening right now and they're thinking of a few things they'd like to rant about. How do they do it in a way that is effective or quote-unquote conscious?
1: Well, the key word is conscious because most of us rant unconsciously. We, we may go on and on with a partner or a friend repeating the same thing, escalating the argument, wasting our energy and the others, and creating some damage perhaps in the wake of that. But if someone wants to enter a conscious rent, I'd say you you put yourself in a safe space, there's no interruptions, you may have a friend or a partner there to support you, to simply be like a coach in the sidelines, and you take the situation that's really, really upsetting you and you're just caught in it, you're overwhelmed by it, you stand up, knees are bent a little bit, you're breathing, eyes are usually half closed, and you start to let the movement of that, intense feeling come through your body maybe you may shake you may start to feel like your hands going to fists and suddenly you're speaking in a way that is uninhibited and towards or about the situation and what helps here is to know that if you're self-conscious you just do it more fully or you have your partner a frenzy do that even more say that again stomp your feet even harder and It's theater at the same time that it's very authentic. And usually it lasts, I've seen, average two minutes. Sometimes it becomes very funny if you're you're being really reactive and you go into it. Suddenly your reactivity is so out front, so melodramatic, that it's hilarious. And that leads to a very liberating laughter, maybe some tears. It doesn't have to. And it's usually uncomfortable at first, but I've had people who have never done this before in a group, and we all take turns doing that with some good coaching. And most people want to do it every day. After that, maybe just for a couple minutes, because it feels so good to move the energy fully, rather than to mull it over, think about it for hours, um, hurt our partner with our uh, with it, the, the half-expressed part of it. So there's a freedom in it. It's like an adult temper tantrum, but a responsible one. Well, I know if I'm if I'm feeling. If I'm churning, Diane will say to me, she'll say, you know, Diane's my wife, Diane will say, you know, you've said that, said that three times now about whatever the topic is. Maybe you should have a conscious rant. So I'll come in the living room, she'll sit there, she'll watch, I'll go all out, a couple minutes, it's done. And we've, that's why I put it as the appendix in the book. I think it's so helpful for men when there's the, the sense of things are building, there's a tightening, there's a charge. It's great for women too, but in the book... I really want men to get that this is a really valuable tool. Really valuable. And it's a pleasure, too, because you're in it you're so embodied. Uh, the legs usually will stomp some, hands may go on fists, you may bend over, you may end up curled up in a ball crying your heart out at the end of it, or you may just stand there and roar with laughter, or fall into your partner's arms, or lay spread-eagled on the floor. There's a sense of, of it's a healthy catharsis. It's not just blowing off steam, it's that, but it's, is connected, it's connected to a specific event or person. The only thing I would add to this is if it's about one's partner, it's important sometimes to do that without the partner there. If, it's, if there's some things you want to say that are, could be very hurtful, but you would need to say them, you may have your partner be somewhere else for a couple of minutes while you do it on your own or have a friend there to coach you.
0: So, Robert, you're talking about how we can work with. You know, you called it heart anger and you know how we can express our rage in a clean way that doesn't do any harm. But before we move on, we were talking about the topic of shame. And I don't want to leave that because I want to read a quote from you towards the beginning of the sure. book. And here's what you say. You say, one of the first things I do when I'm working with a man who is emotionally shut down is to help him explore his shame and his relationship and his history with it, his relationship to it and his history with it. So tell me why you would start there with a man who is emotionally well, of shut all, down. First
1: because, because it's, it's there and it's usually not spoken because most men have shame about having shame as if somehow that's a sign of weakness, but it's there. And by introducing it in a very, in a skillful way where I'm emotionally resonant with him, where we end up talking, I may talk a bit about how it's been for me, how it is for men in general. And we may I'll maybe take a smaller zone of his shame and we'll look at it. And most men are unaware of how much shame they're carrying, how much they are being driven by their shame and how easily they tend to let it mutate into aggression or withdrawal, dissociation, et cetera. So it's like an educational process i don't do it all I don't spend hours on it It just takes a spirit relatively short time and once he's had that conversation with me with diane she's almost always there um there's an easing into what the shame is about and also a looking at the history the, how was he shamed how did he deal with it as a boy how does he deal with it now does his partner inadvertently shame him sometimes, and etc. It's a very interesting thing to explore. It's like a lost continent of ourselves for many of us. And once he's heard that, then we can we can proceed with what he came to the session for in the first place, with a little more ease between us, more resonance, more willingness to open up emotionally. Usually, when this, when shame is exposed, um, vulnerability kicks in. There's a a man may be closer to his tears then, or closer to really moving some anger that's been stuck in him for a long time, and it it goes like that.
0: You know, shame can be so uncomfortable, it can feel so terrible, especially if, as you said, this is a lost continent that we're just discovering for the first time. How do you help people deal with that, just the terribleness of contacting their shame?
1: Well, in part by letting them know that, that what they're going to be learning from working with us is be, they're going to learn the art of becoming more comfortable with their discomfort. And, and shame is, of course, very uncomfortable. That's part of its nature. It's squirmingly uncomfortable. It interrupts us in our tracks, which can be great if we're actually going in a direction that's not going to be good for us or the other person. Our shame over what's occurring can stop us and suddenly we go, oh my God, what am I doing? So it's when I've learned when I sit with shame I see people sitting with shame being present with it it opens up the system it contracts us at first then there's an opening there's an increase in vulnerability and there's often a a sense of uh, the car conscience arising with that and um, accompanied by wanting to atone say I'm sorry in an authentic way to reconnect so in a way shame disconnects us from what's happening and then it connects us because we, when we, when we follow the, the impulse to atone, to humble ourselves, it usually eases the other and there's a sense of, of increased intimacy. So in a couple, in a partnership, when shame is shared, it brings the two closer together almost always because it's such a vulnerable thing to share, to just say, I feel shame, and to stay with that. In the full view of your partner, knowing feeling a, an urge perhaps to drop your eyes, look away, and but not doing that, sitting with it. It's funny because there's a sense of in, increasing dignity in that too because we're, even though shame seems to be the opposite of dignity, when we sit with it and we're present with it and we allow it to course through our system for a short time, I think it's it, it, it does something really, really good for us. It lets us feel in part the consequences of our actions. The more in touch I'm with my shame, the less likely I am to be able to hurt another. The more quickly I'm likely to, to to stop going in a certain direction that could be hurtful. Because I can sense what the impact I can sense the impact I'm having on the other. The shame keeps me on my toes in a sense. It keeps me vulnerable. It keeps me raw. But unfortunately, most shame goes in a a deeper, darker direction, which is that of not just to make us feel bad about our behavior, but about our very being. And that's what we call toxic shame, where we just feel like so bad about ourselves. And we can either sink into that, get lost in it, get very depressed, or we can overcompensate and become too prideful, too aggressive.
0: It seems like both men and women have a lack of training, if you will, in how to be with the discomfort of shame. I'm wondering yeah. what you think the particular challenges are for men when it comes to this experience of shame.
1: I think it's to the notice the, the urge to aggress against others, to get even, to go from being the humiliated hero, say in a cinematic sense, to the, the vengeful. Clint Eastwood to a type of hero from the old westerns where we just we get even we no one gets to put us down and for in other words, for a man to sense that in him and to sense his his motivation for going into aggression the escape implicit in it and I think for women and I'm generalizing here a lot women tend tend more than men to turn the aggression inward men do too but women especially will turn that aggression inward. In part because historically outward aggression was not a very safe thing to get into. So here's inward aggression manifesting in the form of an inner critic, perhaps even an industrial strength, inner critic that just takes whatever you're doing, puts you down for it, and most of us who have not worked in ourselves will tend to respond to the inner critic the way an obedient child does to a harsh parent. But once we see this, we can start to work with it. I mean we work with every when we for uh, therapy training on how to skillfully face the inner critic, the internalized sense of self-shaming, of heartlessly negative self-appraisal. Once one relates to that um, thing we call the inner critic, that process, we give away less and less power to it. We sense it, we name it, we even give it a, a specific name, and we are, through relating to it, no longer under its thumb, no longer under its sway, and it's very liberating to learn how to do this, especially when it kicks in in the midst of, say, relational hassle, times when we feel crushed, to notice that we we may think we're being, we're pathetic, but then we get, oh my god, I'm not pathetic, my, my inner critic says I'm pathetic, what a difference, what a difference. And in many men, the inner critic um, shows up as a slave driver. Push harder. Do more. Be more competent. Don't, Don't crack. Be strong for everybody. On and on and on, as if strength means simply shutting down our vulnerability and tenderness and just being like this bastion of hardness.
0: So I understand, I think, the value of identifying this inner critic as being a separate voice. It's And we've internalized it, but it's separate from us. And I can go, oh, that's my inner critic pushing me, yeah. being a slave driver. But what if you still feel like you're being driven, like the inner critic's driving? I mean, the whip is being cracked.
1: Then that's the part where you need to shift your attention away from the content of the inner critics getting across to you to just the feeling of it the, the consensus of unease disease and shifting awareness from thinking to feeling which can be emotional feeling or it could just simply be a sensation in other words you ground yourself so that you are no longer have an open ear to the inner critics diatribes which are predictable it's the same stuff over and over again it's this repetitive and once you're grounded more and you're settled in your being more and the belly's softening you can see more you've you've embodied something different you're not just you're not in your head anymore with it you're not relating to it the way a child relates to a parent you're relating to it from a more adult perspective this is where medita- meditative practice is so helpful We're a really grounded meditative practice where we learn to observe what's going on without getting too just cut off from it we can see it oh, here's the inner critic here's how it's affecting my system even saying to a, a friend or partner when you're having an inner critic attack my inner critic is really coming on strong right now here's what it's saying to me quite a vulnerable undertaking but it, it defuses the situation it disempowers the inner critic many of us have a lot of our powers caught up and in, and in, and in, maintaining the inner critic.
0: In your new book, Robert, To Be a Man, A Guide to True Masculine Power, you offer so many tips to men. We've talked about a couple of them, changing our relationship with shame, knowing the difference between anger and aggression, and being willing to have a conscious rant. And you have a huge section of the book that talks about sexuality and what true masculine power might be in relationship to our sexuality. And I want to just pull out a couple of observations you make and have you comment on them. One is that you say to men, instead of expecting sex to create connection, come to sex already connected. Really? Yeah. I thought the purpose of sex was to help me get connected when, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's what happens when we have sex. What do you mean I'm supposed to come already exactly. connected? Exactly.
1: the purpose seemingly in a conventional way is to make me feel better, create, create a certain sense of connection, uh, make me feel like more of a man. And what I'm saying there seems very counterintuitive, and it is for most men. Some men really get it, but most women get that. that uh, men, but when Men really sink in to the truth of that it really shifts things then then this then sex is no longer pressured to be the this go-to strategy for feeling good in a hurry it becomes just a simply one more expression of already present connection and if we're already connected to the other already relatively happy at ease then sex is simply a celebration of that and if it doesn't go all the way it doesn't matter we're still connected we're still there we're still enjoying the other but if we aren't connected then sex is kind of saddled with the obligation to make us feel better or more secure and it's a lot of pressure and, and that's reflected in the excessive um, interest many men have in sex not because they're inherently built that way but there's such a it's such a quick uh, solution to tension You think of a very lonely horny teenage boy discovering masturbation and the connection between that and pornography here's this go to very quick way of feeling good Unfortunately, that follows all too many men into their adult years and, and often doesn't, is not outgrowing. But it's such, a, it's such a focus. I mean, there's so many jokes about how frequently men think about sex, you know, every 10 seconds or whatever. And that's a reflection of this, that sex has become overly important. It is important, but it, when it's made overly important, um, we over-rely on it to make us feel good. But if I already feel good through working myself, through different practices, then sex is much easier. It's looser. It's freer. And in that, we're going to be far more connected at many levels to our partner. Our partner is not simply going to be just a means through which we can feel some release or relief. But it's going going to be a deepening of of an already present connection and an amplification of intimacy. And I think when when men discover that and they enter into that, it's so freeing. It's so beautiful. But to get there, one has to see how one has harnessed one's sexuality, perhaps to, to um, various non-sexual needs that are not being met.
0: Tell me what you mean by that. What non-sexual needs?
1: Well, say if, say if, if this, uh, someone feels a man feels very insecure, kind of shaky, and instead of facing the insecurity, working with it, unearthing its historical roots, etc., he simply finds a brief break from that insecurity through sex. In a sense, you could say he's eroticized his need um, for security. He feels a certain security through being sexual, but once the sex act is done, then being the insecurity is still sitting there. It's not been resolved. It simply was eroticized, but he has not moved through it, and if he's using pornography, that will probably reinforce it even more. It, it deepens that link between mind and genitals. And uh, I could go on and on about pornography. You saw that I have a whole section there called, I, I think I called it "Outgrowing porn, which is so, so important for men. I, I there's an epidemic of it. There's an epidemic. I, I see so, so many men who are really hooked into it and, and gone past the point of justifying it, but just feel they're addicted an addiction and the partners don't like it and the culture there's so much of it it's a big thing to to face that i think it takes real balls for men to face that addiction and humbly and courageously start to cut through it because it improves everything improves relationships and it improves everything and just not to say that, that porn is being moralistically condemned or extolled it's more like how about i'm growing it how about going beyond it? How about, what's it like when sex is completely free of porn, when there's just simply two beings connecting at deeper and deeper levels with no need to rely on fantasy or some sidelong glance at porn? The other is enough.
0: But what if someone's listening and is like, come on, Robert, what's the big deal? What's wrong with fantasy? What's wrong with, you know, I'm not an addict. It's just something that gives me pleasure. What's the problem? Yeah.
1: Well, it's not that something's wrong with it. It's more like it's an unskillful approach because if if two people, if if I'm fantasizing while being sexual with a partner, then I'm going to be somewhat cut off from the other person because my mind is really involved. I am relying on that. I'm bringing a preset kind of conditioning into the relationship. I think it's more about, yeah, you can do some good things with fantasy, but there's so much more When you go beyond it when you really can gaze at the other person and see them and they the connection is the aphrodisiac you don't need a turn-on strategy some sort of something to stimulate you you're turned on not by certain buttons being pushed or certain sensations being aroused you're turned on simply because of the connection because of the love
0: You have a quote from the book The Degree of Drive or Compulsiveness that characterizes our sexual fantasies reflects the degree of intensity of pain that we're attempting to bypass through our very immersion in such fantasies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more the more pain we're in and the more we aren't working with that pain the more we're going to be drawn to various practices that temporarily relieve us of that pain, sedate us a little bit, and sex is very high on the list. And I think the big step here, and it's a really big step, and I admire anyone who's taking that step, however small, is to turn toward that suffering, turn toward that pain, and start to get to know it, start to work with it, start to reach the place where it doesn't, we don't have to turn away from it. Yeah, it hurts, it's unpleasant, and if we stay with it, we pass through it. And it's very liberating to do that, to to not feel uh, we have to get away from it.
0: Well, I, I think that many times when people think about, you know, to be a man, it would mean to have a very high libido. That's a sign of manliness, to be turned on a lot. And yet you're questioning that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's so many men that are, that are pressured. Just like when younger men are often are talking about their sexual exploits to each other, they will exaggerate how many lovers they've had, what they've done. It's just somehow that their egoic sense of self is tied to how well they perform, how many lovers they've had, all of that. And there's such a a tie-in between egoity and sexual performance. But beyond that is an egoity, not an egoity, but a sexuality that is not tied to our small sense of self. It's tied to something much bigger and something much more connected and truly mutual, truly mutual. But you're right, I mean, a lot of what being a man is to many men is, okay, the more studly you are, the more powerful you are sexually, the more, it's as if that's, that that's, it's like an initiation, one of the initiations in, into manhood in conventional terms is having sex, getting laid for the first time, or getting just like getting royally drunk. There's a certain status in it, however low grade that may be, and that's understandable in a younger man, but I think it's, so important for men when they step into their maturity to outgrow that, to outgrow that sense of sex being somehow tied to their self-esteem or status as a male. I mean, a man could have sex very infrequently and still be a profoundly mature man. He doesn't feel driven to do that. And the men I've seen and worked with who uh, want to have sex a lot almost always were um, filled with a lot of turbulence agitation anxiety anger and sex for them was kind of relief and it was like in in which their partner was the outhouse for their frustrations or anxiety and that's just a very low-grade way of using one's sexuality I think men are capable of so much more in that area and that begins with being having more of a sense of who they are as sexual beings how they've been conditioned how they're affected by the culture to what degree are they obsessed by certain sexual things, and on and on.
0: So if you were going to summarize for men, in your view, a sexuality that was informed by a type of true masculine power, what would be its characteristics?
1: uh, Healthy embodiment, um, integrity being connected to the other not being tentative being direct and sensitive at the same time and being vulnerable that's very central being vulnerable at the beginning middle and end like just staying open staying open and not and being emotionally transparent being emotionally there and so their lust is held in a in a kind of a heartfelt connected context it still can be gloriously alive lust but it's not divorced from connection. I keep saying the word connection and I think it's so, so important to not lose that with the other. And that's the most common complaint I hear from women when we're doing couples counseling around sex is that the partner, the man, loses connection or comes to it, not connected or wants it when he's not feeling connected but he just wants it. And they're saying, see me, look in my eyes, be with me. And in that sense, one can reach a point where the whole relationship becomes foreplay, not in a sexual way, but where every conversation, its all it all is there, and it reinforces connection, it's expressive of connection, and then sex is relieved of the pressure to be the go-to strategy. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, hey, we're still connected. What's the big deal? Which is especially important as we age and our, our sexual drive lessens, so that we're not going, oh, my God, I wish I still had that. It's more, okay, I can adapt to this. Because I love feeling connected to you. And if it's erotic, great. And if it isn't, it's also great.
0: Now you said something interesting, not being tentative. What's yeah. the problem with being tentative when approaching your partner sexually for a man? Well what's, what's if, the problem? If
1: I'm being approached tentatively by another, then I'm feeling I'm feeling both their they're pulled to connect more with me. I'm also feeling something else that's not there. It's not about connection. They're divided. They're not wholeheartedly with me. And I think a, a non-tentative touch is not a clumsy touch or an aggressive touch. It's a touch where there's presence. So if someone touches you, put their, puts their hands on you, I don't mean just sexually or it could be non-sexually, you're going to feel, most of us can tell through the touch, is that person really with me right now? You can almost feel the motivation. Do they have an agenda? Are they divided? If someone's really with you and they put their hands on you, like in a good bodywork session, a skilled bodyworker, you can feel that person is really present in their touch, not just with their hands but their body. And most of us feel much better when we're being contacted in a way that's non-tentative. I I mean, for some reason it's important to be cautious with some people. This is different. I'm talking about people who are already close, but... There's a tentative quality. There's a sense of being on eggshells. I have to be careful with this person. Or there's a sense where a man may touch a woman in a way where he's trying to decipher, does she really want to have sex with me? And she may find that probably maybe kind of creepier, like it's a turnoff because he's not there present in his full masculinity. He's he's partially there. And when a man's head, heart, and are in full-blooded alignment, there's a natural confidence he has that emanates from him, that I think makes the other feel safe, feel more drawn to him. It's not a seductive strategy, it's simply a way of approaching That's feels so natural, it's easy.
0: That sounds really good, but what's a man supposed to do when he feels tentative? If there's fear, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I might be rejected. He needs, to
1: explore, he needs to explore the part, he needs to explore himself and look at where that comes from, which is not that difficult to trace back. You probably can find it in his early history, And and then the question is what, what did you get out of being tentative? What do you get out of that? What are you avoiding by doing it? And to, to start to explore the fear that's at the heart of it and not just through talking about, but actually through some direct emotional work with that fearfulness and stepping, letting that fear start to mutate into something that's more than just fear, it's like excitement, there's some presence, there's some power. There's a natural confidence that comes from that. But it's hard to have that confidence if we're busy, if we're trying to meet a certain standard. We think we have to always be a certain way. That creates tentativeness too. So it's worth exploring deeply. And my book, of course, is an invitation to men to start where you are, explore it, appreciate yourself for the steps you're taking, and realize it takes courage to start the process. It's not about being a great hero in your own eyes just overnight. It's just slow, but steady progression and I see when men re- when men reclaim their balls and their heart as I, at the same time they can stand, I, I've seen literally they can stand in a way that has more depth integrity, dignity and I've noticed again and again and again the women in the groups when we do this always feel much safer with men who are standing like that because the men are naked in that way they're vulnerable but they're rooted there's a grounding to them
0: Now, you use this other phrase, treating a woman like, I think you called it an outhouse for unwanted emotional energies. I think you said outhouse. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering, let's say a man's listening and says, you know, God, you know, in that experience of sexual release, I feel so sane. And I do feel the sense of discharge. I mean, What's the problem, Robert?
1: The problem is if he's if he's if he's not connected to her while well, that's happening. If a lot of men dissociate with getting, when they get really excited and aroused. They may seem like they're right there, but they're 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 immersed in their own arousal and they've lost touch with the other. So that it's not a shared experience. It's more masturbatory. I mean, one can be masturbatory and have a partner right in there because there's a sense of not really letting one's self open deeply, so so the other can see. That's what we often suggest to couples. You know, when you're getting close to orgasm, make, stay in touch, stay connected, share. So that, yeah, it's personal in you, but it's also, it's also relational. And it can be transpersonal, too, if you give yourself to a fully. It can be an, an opening that's profound. But there's a trust in that. There's a trust in that if I get really vulnerable, wide open, nothing bad's going to happen. I'm safe. I'm going to go for it. It's a leap of faith. And there's so much to this, because I me uh, throw this in, is I think that it's a mistake to try to crystallize our sexuality from the rest of our life. I think what we do sexually, however indirectly, reflects the rest of our relationship, the rest of the way we live. It shows up. It can't help but show up. All our neuroses are there, all our longing, it's all there. And if we're willing to show all that, to be present with all that, we can have profound encounters.
0: Okay, there's another section of the book, To Be a Man, A Guide to True Masculine Power, that I found really, really interesting. And it's a chapter called What Women Need for Men, An Invitation to Be a Full Partner. And you offer a list of, in your view, what women would like for men, what they need for men. And I want to read some of the different items that you list here. So one is that you say, listen to her without trying to figure out solutions for what's going on. Now, of course, I think this is very, 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 very common that this is a dynamic between men and women. So why is it so hard for men to simply shut up and listen? Why is that so hard?
1: In part because a lot of men are very uncomfortable with what the woman is perhaps going through or feeling. So she's really hurting or sad or emotionally really um, twisted in a certain way or broken. He may not want to feel that in himself, and, if, and the quicker he thinks that he, he f- can fix her, get her out of, the, her out of that uncomfortable state, relieve her from that state, then he can feel at ease. It takes a lot more work and depth and courage to simply be present, and if she's really upset or hurting, to just be with it. Not like an iron man, but like a man who can feel it, he empathizes, but he can still hold space, he's still present, he's not lost in her state, but he's very empathetically connected. And if I'm her and I feel that empathy, it's going to make a huge difference, huge difference. And true listening is not just to the words, it's to what's not being said, it's it's listening with the body, it's being there. And we can tell when someone's really with us when they're listening. And it's a pleasure to be in the presence of someone who can just sit there and listen. And true listening is not just this passive, head-nodding activity. It's dynamic. It's dynamic. But we're not sitting there trying to rehearse our response. We're interested in the other person. So he would be, in that sense, he'd be interested in her and curious, and she would feel his interest, and that would draw her forth more. Whereas if she simply can tell he's kind of partially there, he's tentative in his hearing, he's not really there. She's going to feel, probably feel less like continuing the conversation or dialogue, whatever it is.
0: Okay, you, have a, you offer another guidepost here. Be trustworthy, a safe place for her, protective, but not possessive. And when I read that I thought to myself, what's so bad about being possessive? What's the problem?
1: The problem of being possessive, it can it can it can become clingy, it can become too tight, it can be overly attached, it can be it can be the essence of codependence. It's a sense that if the other person becomes we grab on too tight. When any of us are grabbed on too tight, usually there's a sense of being suffocated. So there's uh a, a sense of not wanting to go there.
0: hmm. Okay, and another guidepost here. Don't let the little boy in you run the show, but don't push him away.
1: Yeah, that's a good one because so many men will push away the little boy, the place in this childlike, vulnerable, soft, tender as if he's a, it's embarrassing to admit that's there. But also, so many men will, under certain pressures, they'll turn into that little boy. They may use adult language, but they're, they're still back there trying to get mum's approval, trying to fight off something. And if they don't know they're doing that, their partner's probably going to suffer way more than is necessary. Because that when he's acting out like that, he's in a reactive mood, he's in a reactive bout, he's just simply not present. But once a man is in touch with that part of himself, we call the little boy, that tender place, that brings a certain quality of ease and vulnerability to the relationship. And the appropriate image in many cases is for the man to, one hand is kind of holding that little boy, that vulnerable little one, maybe even the baby in him. The other hand is can take action. It can say no. It can set a boundary. So he's simultaneously embracing that boy in him and he's also protecting him and he's in this he's not identified with the boy but he's intimate with him he feels him and I think a man that's doing that is much safer he's in touch he knows these different zones of himself and he also has the courage and the capacity to say when that when he's when he regresses he's taken over he feels like he's a kid again he can say that not as an excuse for his behavior but as a fact here it is I want to share this right now I feel like I'm back someplace and this is happening to me, and yet I'm here with you right now. It's honest self-disclosure, but it's not its not an excuse for anything. It's simply, here's some information, here's some sharing.
0: And do you think that women would be receptive? Like, here my partner is saying to me, I'm, I've been taken over, hijacked by, you know, the seven-year-old in me right now. I just want you to know that.
1: I think if the man does that as, a, as an excuse for his bad behavior. I wouldn't blame her for being bothered by that. But if he's doing it as and he, and she can see that he's actually sharing this and he's taking care of it, he's, he's saying, I feel this coming up in me, but here I am. He's relating to something that's kicking in, but he's still responsible. He's not indulging. He's also not trying to cover it up and act like he's just this tough guy. doesn't have this stuff going on. Here it is, and he's shaking. And we all... It, from time to time are shaken by the emergence of old patterns in ourselves, things from a long time ago, and if we can share that without shaming ourselves for it or thinking it's a sign of weakness, it can be quite a lovely thing to bring forth. And, and if I hear that from another, then I'm curious, well, how are you, okay, great, how, how's that, how is that for you right now? How do you feel identified? And it will awaken my compassion or deepen my compassion. I don't care how old we are, we all have those dimensions of ourselves and and the more intimate we are with them, I think the better. The better we know them, the more skillful we are in our relationships.
0: Okay, Robert, you offer about 40 guideposts in this section on what women need for men. I'm just going to read a couple more. Initiate sure. the conversation when it comes to addressing relationship difficulties.
1: Oh, that's such a big one because uh, so often I hear the opposite, the, the complaint of woman saying, I'm so tired of being the one that has to bring up relational hassles, difficulties, challenges and I'm just getting sick and tired of doing it, but if I don't do it then it doesn't get dealt with at all and um, so I often give homework to a couple after we've worked with them for a little bit I want them, the man has a, a chance a choice, a need to do that initiate that for a while and see what it's like when he says, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable with what you said a little while ago or you seem a little uneasy. He, he initiates those sometimes very difficult conversations, which actually can be very rewarding when both people enter into them with, with uh, integrity and openness. And difficult conversations like that are part of any deep relationship. They just arise. But if one person is doing the lion's share of bringing it forward, and it's usually the woman we've found in heterosexual couples, but it's, um, I think men, after all, they, they take to it. There's a sense, oh, I can, I can do this. Once they get past the sense of, oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm not, I'm not emotionally literate enough. I don't understand the psychological dimensions of relationship enough. Once that's worked with and gone past, then it becomes a mutual undertaking. Then the couple has a sense of both bringing it up and both, here's the image, of sitting side by side, gazing with mutual compassion upon the neuroses and challenges of each. And it's not a competition. It's not a power struggle. It's a sense of being on the same team and the we space gets stronger and stronger. So both can look at the difficulty together. What a liberating thing to share that with another person where you're both looking at it and you're both growing through, it, you're both evolving through it. And the more you do it, the better you get at it.
0: Now this next one, Robert, I think in many ways shows part of the challenge that runs through the entire book to be a man. And this is the guidepost you offer be vulnerable without losing your spine. Yeah. How do I do that?
1: Practice. I mean, it's the first thing is to visit to, is to be able to be vulnerable. And, and that that can take some work to face the shame of that, the history of it and the, the fear of what will happen if I do this. But the way I've worked with men is always to always to keep the spine fine find the ground, don't lose power because you're being doing that. You have the strength and vulnerability, but with also some vulnerability can just be where we just fall on the floor and we're a puddle and we we have lost power. Now, sometimes that's appropriate when we're reliving something very heavy, like in trauma work, but having one spine is about having dignity, where I can have dignity and still be very soft and vulnerable, but I'm not going to crumble just because... I feel tender inside, or my heart feels ripped open. I've seen something that really breaks my heart. It's not hardening, but there's a sense of of still standing, like a tree that's swaying in the wind, but you still have your roots. And I think it's a beautiful thing to to find, discover, and deepen in oneself, is to have that tenderness, and yet there's that power is right there, so you can also take very strong action. But the vulnerability keeps us from taking action in a way that would be harmful or hurtful or dehumanizing
0: and this might be my favorite one on the list and, and the last one i'm going to mention don't neglect personal hygiene
1: <laughs> i, I want to i'll say something here when i did that list i, I think diane suggested i do a chapter like that and I thought, okay but i want you to go over it with me very carefully because I'm a man. I mean, I, I'm very empathetic towards women, but I'm still a man. I want to know your perspective. So I we work in that a lot and, and um, I think that's an important point. It seems, can seem trivial, but it's about, it's about self-care because so many people put up with another partner doing something that kind of irritates them, doesn't quite work for them and they stay quiet. They don't want to hurt their feelings. But it's worth saying. It's worth saying. I'm glad you enjoyed that one.
0: Now, Robert, here I am as a lesbian relating to so many of the points in your book to be a man. And I wonder what your view is. You know, here we're living in a time where people are moving beyond this binary categorization of men and women into yeah. a transgendered world and a whole gray zone of what's masculine, what's feminine? How do you view all of that, especially in light of publishing a book to be a man?
1: Well, when I wrote it, I, I knew at one point, as I've worked with quite a few um, gay men, lesbian couples over the decades. I thought, I have to have a chapter in here, even though I'm, I'm, I'm heterosexual. I got to have a chapter in here about gay men. I think I called it including gay men. And I really wanted to include it, and I remember making sure it got in the book, and I had different uh, gay men I know read it and give me feedback, and they felt great with it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put it in there. I think it's such an important consideration. And I know when we work with, with um, non-straight couples that the same dynamics are there. It's the same work in many ways. And I think to, to really step into one's full, healthy masculinity to embody our full manhood we can't a, a straight man cannot leave out men who are not straight we have they have to be included not just in a politically correct way. they have to be included to where after a all it's not straight men and gay men it's just men we're all men. and I felt really good bringing that in and um, I think it's so important to have that be included.
0: And how about women? Such as myself, who are relating to questions of masculine power from the perspective of still being in a female body, but really relating to this idea of what is true masculine power. Well,
1: I think so much of what I wrote in the book—I I address so much of it to men. It's also for women, and I don't see huge gender differences. I mean, there are some differences that are biochemical, but here, here we are. I think it's—I think power. It's a is, when I write about power masculine power. I'm really writing about power, per se. Because there's a certain intensity and depth of power men need to embody more. So do women. It's all mixed in. It's all mixed in. I don't know if that answers your question, but I I, I see it as all working together.
0: And I'm curious, you've written this guidebook to be a man. What part of your own journey into true masculine power would you say has been the most difficult and challenging for you?
1: I I think it was getting vulnerable. I mean, I was a very, very sensitive, dreamy child, but I I got very, very hurt. And I grew up hardened. I was like a fortress, ultra-competitive, sports, grades, and, and... and I would call it like I was Fort Robert. I mean, I was I was a uh, really, and then I had an incredibly painful relationship breakup in my twenties, and it cracked me. I did not want to crack. I did not want to cry. I would not cry. I didn't cry since I was very young. But it was so intense, and it went on for so. It was so. It, it just broke me. And I, it was such grace. And I look back upon it, but I hated it. I fought it. But when I broke. I discovered I could, I could sense things more. I could, I could see more. I felt more. I had feedback from others right away about how much more they liked me. I, there was so much, and I, still, I was ashamed of it, but I couldn't stop it. And I persisted to the point where it became more and more natural for me. But I had to kind of break that down, and, and I was not very empathetic. I was, my, my motto, in a way, when I was younger was, what's in it for me? I was a, I was into, into survival and being really tough and hard and accomplished, and that breaking was so so important for me. And I broke open, and I I went back and forth. I didn't just stay open. I went back and forth. I had learned the art of a health finding a healthier power, and um, I'm 67 now, and I still have times where I break open. I'm don't like it but i trust the process it feels so right to me when i when i allow that and what comes through isn't so healing and i have the, the great grace of having a partner who can be 100 percent with me in that and um i see it as an ongoing journey it's not like i've arrived and now i'm i could be a higher level of fort robert it's about opening more and more deeply and in that, I find a deeper masculinity. I, I feel more male in a beautiful way. I also feel my, my femaleness, too, and my androgyny, too. I feel very androgynous a lot of the time, especially when I'm doing work with, in groups and, and working with couples. And if I, I love the work. I don't feel, identify myself, okay, I'm a guy doing this, or I'm a very feminized male. No, I'm androgynous, too. And I, I kind of like the span of it. I embrace the, embrace all of that, and I've learned that in many ways the hard way, growing up. And um, so, what I'm writing, I'm writing from my own experience, which feels so good. So it's not theoretical. I've I've been there, and uh, done that, and I'm still growing. I'm still evolving, even as I get older and older.
0: Now, one final part of the book, "To Be a Man," that I want to highlight was a section that you wrote called Being at Your Edge. And you talked about how it's important for men to actually challenge themselves and to be at their edge. And of course, our program's called Insights at the Edge. So I paid special attention to this section on the edge and being at your edge. What do you mean by that?
1: It's the place where our growth is maximal. And it's it's a place we approach often with some trepidation because we know what's going to be asked of us and, and we can't, we have to kind of, there's a leap of faith involved in it, in being at, really being at one's edge. And the edge varies so much for each of us. I mean, someone's, some one person's edge may be simply to raise their voice very slightly in a therapy session. Someone else's edge could be to do something that seems much bigger and much more dramatic. But this is where we grow. And I think the more Intimate, I am with my edge. The more alive I feel, I'm not taking foolhardy risk, but there is a risk. I think it's a bigger risk not to go there, not to hang out at the edge. If we play it safe in a relationship, for example, and we start to deaden, yeah, it's kind of it was secure. We're going to be the person the rest of our life, but just, just we're, we've deadened ourselves. And so what I've chosen is to be alive as possible, and that means there's risk involved—not foolish risk, but there is risk. And um, I remember I wrote a lot of movie reviews for the book, and I, uh, it was really hard in the editing process. So I thought these are such incredibly beautiful reviews, but I had to cut them down so so much. Like Avatar was originally five pages long, and the book is like one page. And the chapter you mentioned is a review of a movie called The Instinct, where an edge is shown very early in the film, and um, which really gripped me when I saw. It. I thought this has to go in the men's book. It's perfect. Here's an edge. Here's a so-called civilized man who's has, hasn't been at his edge for a long, long time. Here's a more seemingly messed up man who is at his edge, and they're getting together. Let's see what happens. And um, I find that edge every time I do a, a psychotherapy session or group. There's so much. I don't plan my, the work. It's all unrehearsed. It's fluid. It flows and goes very deep. And as often, things will happen that require an immense amount of presence for me. And I like that edge. I feel at home with it.
0: Let's say there's a man listening, and he says, "I'm not quite sure where my edge is in this moment in my life. I'm not quite sure."
1: Well, you could ask, "What scares him? What 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 makes him quake in his boots a little bit that he knows he could do, or he might move toward? For example, something he might share with his his partner or a friend that he hasn't before that feels, he knows is relevant. He's, he's afraid of what he'll feel when he says it. There's there's all so many edges, so many edges." And I think the, the more intimate we are with that edge, the more we play it, the better. And being intimate with means that we we don't we don't go past it, we don't go too far. Um, we respect our limits, but we do stay with that. We stay with that. It'd be like at night if I wake up and I can't sleep, and I I may just lay there and hope to get sleep. But it's a very this is a very small edge, but I may get up three AM I got a full work day and just come into the room, do some yoga, meditate, go very deep, and let go of the of the urgency. I've got to sleep to do my day. I'd rather go deep, get the meditation, sit in that, rest in that, feel myself. And I'm so used to it. It's it's uh I really I I you probably do too, where right? I enjoy being there. It's more vital, it's more alive, it's more messy. I can look more foolish at times. I may be less articulate in some ways. But I'm there and, I have a, and I'm in a relationship where that's required of me. And my partner, my wife, Diane, feels the very same way, even though it doesn't mean we're always we're not on edge where there's an ease to it. But at any point we can go much, much deeper and we're both there for that. I love that. And I think men enjoy the challenge of that. Like doing psychotherapy is an edge for most men. Um, there's a sense of, of moving towards one's, one's pain, one's fear, one's, mor- one's mortality that's an edge. Most of us would rather not look at our own death. I find it very liberating to, to consider that um, in a more than just intellectual way. And on it goes.
0: I've been speaking with Robert Augustus Masters and we're talking about his new book, To Be a Man, A Guide to True Masculine Power. Robert, I want to thank you so much for the conversation and really for writing a book that is so comprehensive and offers so many different guideposts for men. I love this endorsement from Harville Hendricks. He says, to be a man, every man should read it as autobiography. Every woman should read it as revelation. And our culture should embrace it as a healing balm. Powerful endorsement.
1: Oh man, I loved getting that from you.
0: Thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Here we are, at our edge okay. in this conversation. I feel a little <laughs> a little foolish, a little, okay, it's my edge. Thank you, Robert.
1: Yep. Yeah. thanks, Tammy. I mean, there's so much more we could say, but I appreciate diving in with you like that. It's great.
0: Thank you. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.